If you want more revelation, you sow what you have. It's seed time and harvest, not only in the natural things, but in the spiritual things. That's why the Lord said it's more blessed to give than receive because you can't separate the sowing of what God has blessed your life with with the multiplication of what you re release. And so to share the revelation, to share the testimony, to share what God has given you means that you have positioned yourself to receive more. This should become so exciting to us and so habitual in our lifestyle as a Christian that we are continually looking for ways to release the deposit of God that's in our life. Amen? So here we have a picture right here of in Luke chapter 19. Now I'm going to focus on the last seven days of the life of Jesus before the cross. Very prophetic. And it speaks to this generation, in particular this passage right here, when we're talking about the triumphal entry. We can change that to say, here's a prophetic principle or a prophetic metaphor of the triumphal return of Messiah to this earth. So let's look at that. In Luke 19, verse 28, it says, When he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass, when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount called Olivet, that he said to two of his disciples, Now here's something important. Scripture declares that God establishes everything in the mouth of two or three witnesses. So the number two is significant. It speaks of witness. It, and literally, when you see the number two in Scripture, it should, in a loud voice, prophetic voice, speak to you, pay attention, this is significant, because two is a witness. And the Lord wants you to see something. So he speaks to two disciples. That's why he always sent them out two by two. Pay attention, this is significant. It's a witness. He tells two of his disciples, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. Now here's the metaphor. Not only is it prophetic that Jesus gives them directions to go and do something that in the culture of the day and even today would look like grand theft. Just go untie that colt and bring it here. That colt belongs to somebody. That's like me telling you, go ahead and uh, go down to the Mercedes dealership and just grab one of the keys of one of those nice cars and, and get in the car and bring it here because we have need of it. How do you think they would respond? Not too well. Unless the favor of God was upon your life. Let me, let me tell you a story about favor. In the year 2000, the Lord spoke to my heart and he said, I want you to study favor in Scripture. It says of Jesus that he grew in wisdom, stature, and favor with both God and man. Favor is the unmerited grace or the unmerited favor of God, something we don't deserve, but it's God shining His light, His life, and His 
his mercy upon your life. It's favor. It pours out from the presence of God. And so I studied that for a whole year. And here's what I do when I study something that God puts on my heart. I, on an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper, I typed out a phrase that summarized what I had been studying. And this is what I wrote. Today is the day of the unparalleled, unprecedented, unmerited favor of God upon my life. And I made a few copies of those and I would put it in my apartment in San Antonio. So when I woke up in the morning, the first thing I'd see would be that revelation right in front of my eyes. I put it on the mirror in the bathroom so that I would see it again. I put it by the coffee pot in the, living, in the kitchen, which I read that one a lot. I like coffee. I put it on the front door before I would go out of the house. I was constantly reminding myself of what God was speaking to me. And in that day, I had been working a little bit in San Antonio, but I knew the Lord had released me from that city and I was to move. I didn't know where I was going to go. I didn't have the finances to pack up and drive across the country or go anywhere. But I just kept, kept the promise of God. One day I got a phone call. And the phone call came from an individual from California. And he said, I've been praying and the Lord spoke to my heart. And he said, I believe you're supposed to move out here. Well, that is, the Lord had been tugging me that way. I hadn't told anybody. I said, okay. He said, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pay for all of your moving expenses. I said, wow, you people in California really hear God well. So he wired the money, and I rented a big U-Haul truck, loaded everything up, and drove across the country. Took three days to get there. When I got there, I pulled up and in front of this, this brother's home, and I said, okay, just show me where the, the storage is, and I'll go unload my truck and he said, no, no, no. He said, the Lord spoke to me. He said, bring your truck and follow me. And so I followed him, and he pulled up in front of a house. He said, the Lord told me to give you this home. I said, my goodness, you guys really hear God well in California. I was blown away. Now, I walked into the house, and there was some, a little bit of damage. He said, don't look at that. I'm going to pay for everything to be redone. So he did. I had a brand new house that was given to me. I moved everything into the house. And now, one day I'm praying and I get a knock at the door. Here's this brother. He said, you know, you don't have a car. The Lord told me to give you a car. And he handed me the keys to a Corvette. I went, man, Lord, how come all your people don't hear like you, they do in California? So I had a, a Corvette and a, and a brand new house. And I'm overwhelmed. I'm just blessed. I said, Lord, what? this is amazing. What is this? He said, this is what favor looks like. I said, okay. And so I'm just, you know, doing what the Lord's shown me to do. And one day I got a phone call. This brother says, you know, I've been praying and the Lord told me, uh, I've got this motorhome sitting here. I want to give it to you. Motorhome, that's a travel trailer with we, you know, that you drive. I said, really? Yeah, yeah. I said, my goodness. So I had, I had a motorhome. Shortly after that, a brother called me and said, listen, I've got this beautiful sailboat I want to bless you with. I'm in the desert, 100 miles from the water. I said, thank you, Lord. 
What am I going to do with this? He just started showering me with blessing, favor. So it comes the new year, and I'm praying, and I'm saying, Lord, this has been one of the most amazing years of my life. I never asked for this stuff. What are you saying for this next year? He said, well, it's a year of increase. I went, increase? House, car, motorhome, boat, airplane. <laughs> I started going, oh, good. I, Lord, I like P-51 Mustangs, you know, vintage. I said, okay, Lord, what do you want me to do? He said, give everything away. He told me that on January 3rd. By January 6th, I had given everything away, and I had my suitcase again. Favor. You know what he told me after that? Number two things. Number one, in March, I traveled to Fiji, and he said, here's your increase. This is my lovely wife. Number two... About a month after I had given everything away, one day he told me, you passed the test. I said, what test, Lord? He said, what I gave you, you kept an open hand and realized you were a steward, not an owner. You passed the test. I didn't even know it was a test. He said, because you passed this test, you will live in favor for the rest of your life. What Jesus tells these disciples to do is to begin a walk of favor. Now, we're talking about the return of Messiah. This is a picture of this generation. So Jesus sends the two. They go into this little town, and what do they find? There's the little colt tied exactly as Jesus says. Now, here's the picture of the colt. This colt is an untried beast of burden. It's never been used before. That's what the word said. It speaks of a teachable individual. But they're still tied to the post of generational religious tradition. And they're going to be going in the same way that previous generations of burden-bearing donkeys have gone. Except for Jesus says, loose that colt. Set them free from the tyranny of the familiar and release it to me. And so they go and they're doing that very thing when the owner of that donkey came out and said, what are you doing? And they said, well, the Lord has need of him. And the owner said, oh, okay, in that case, go ahead. Again, that logically, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever except there was a supernatural divine favor and grace upon their life. And so they brought the colt to Jesus. Let me tell you another story about favor. Favor is a thing that where the Lord will not only give you favor with him, himself, he'll give you favor with man. So much so that even those that don't like you will, will run to bless you, and they don't even know why they're blessing you, because they don't like you. And it's amazing how God does this. Reshma and I were ministering in an Episcopal church, St. Luke's Episcopal in Seattle, Washington, where the charismatic renewal had begun in the 60s in, in Seattle. Well, now there was a different rector. He was a friend of ours. But we're ministering there for a whole week. He asked us to come and minister. And so 
just like I do with you, I say amen, and oh, amen. Some of you say that, some of you don't. And so this brother, by Saturday, I was doing every night. Saturday comes, and he finally walks up. He walks up to us before the service. He said, why do you keep trying to have us say amen? We're not Pentecostal. He was really irate. I said, brother, I really don't care if you say amen or not. What I'm trying to get you to do is to get you out of your comfort zone, out of your religious box, and expand so that you can receive more of God. That's just one method. He said, well, you had me so irritated by Tuesday night, I had to keep coming. I said, what? Both Reshman and I are kind of looking at each other. Okay. And then he reached into his shirt pocket. He had a folded check. He said, here. And he walked off. And, I'm, and I, I didn't open it. I put it in my pocket and went, that is really bizarre. But it so challenged me. I thought, what is the matter? And he gives me a... So worship's going on, and I do something I've never done. I, I decide to get it out and look at it. And I looked at it and almost passed out. It was $10,000. I said, oh, dear God, can I irritate a few more people? <laughs> That's what favor is. People bless you in spite of themselves. This is the hour and, a, and the season. This is a generation that you're going to know the favor of God. Because you have a destiny. Don't get too excited. Good heavens. Pastor, can we have a resurrection service? I used to tell the Lord, Lord Jesus, I, I raise the dead every Sunday. When I dismiss them, they come alive. So they bring, now listen, this teachable, untested, untried cult. They bring it to Jesus. And what happens? Well, the disciples remove their mantles and they place it on the colt. Now get this metaphor, get this picture in your mind. Remember I said the first century church, that's where we were birthed from. We're called to grow up over the course of the development of the church to the place of maturity just before the return of Jesus. Many years ago, the Lord told me, every past revival you've witnessed, rather than saying, oh Lord, we wish we could have that revival again, understand their birth pangs and they're pointing towards something. They're pointing towards the last great move of God that's coming to the world at the end of the age. Every past revival was a birth pang for what he's about to release in this generation. That's powerful. He said the last great move of God will be noticed or known for its holiness, purity, and the fear of God. Nobody's going to put their fingerprint on and say, look what God's doing in our church. Look what we, we prayed into existence. The Lord's going to do this spontaneously and he's going to raise up a people that will steward this last great move of God that will continue unabated until the return of Jesus. Every last great move, every revival in the past began and ended. Began because somebody prayed and cried out. Ended because man tried to harness that and put their stamp on it and corral what God was doing. Every revival ended when man got in the way. This one is not going to happen. 
So we have a prophetic picture of these apostles, these disciples, placing their mantles upon this cult. Every past mantle or anointing that's ever been witnessed in the earth has gone as, as seed into the ground. But this generation is going to reap the harvest of every past mantle. And where there was one or two, there's going to be hundreds because God does things hundredfold. So I encourage you and I challenge you as you read Scripture and see the mantles that these men and women of old walked in, you need to pray and, and, and claim, say, Lord, I want to walk in this. This is the hour of the release of these mantles. And Lord, I choose to believe your word and I'm going to walk in this. You can be a glutton for Jesus. You can have an insatiable desire for all that is God's and all that's in this word. That's biblical because God responds to passion. He's looking for a people of passion. So then they put their garments upon the colt. The next thing they did is they set Jesus on the colt. Oh my, my, my. We go from anointing to habitation. From anointings, from mantles, to glory. He's the God of glory. What does it look like when Jesus doesn't just come to visit, but when Jesus manifests himself in such a way where his presence remains? We've not yet seen that to the extent we're going to. I'll tell you one thing about the glory, the presencing of Jesus. There have been a few meetings that we've been in, and I've literally seen Jesus walk into the, into the meeting. And in those times, he says, don't you minister to anybody. I'm going to minister to them. And he's told me to have people line up. He'd be standing in front, and they'd come, and he'd minister to them. And I'd watch what he was doing. First off, there was a supernatural hush. You know, when we say in the church, let's just be still for a minute, it's not even a minute. Most people can't sit still for 30 seconds without a shuffling or a movement or a cough or a beep, beep, beep of a phone. You know, but when God is there, when the Spirit of God, the presence of God comes, we could have heard a pin drop for three hours as they stood quietly. And then I would watch them come up and, you know, people were instantly delivered that nobody's touching anybody. But Jesus, I watched as Jesus would cast demons out, as he would touch people and they'd be instantly healed, as he would love on them and as he would minister to them. And finally at the end of this one session, the, the pastor was a woman in this particular church. She said she had helped everybody come through. She said, is he still there? I said, of course he is. She said, well, is it all right if I go and get blessed? I said, of course. She walked up to Jesus and she had served her people the whole time. She waited two hours. Jesus smiled at her, and when he did, she dropped. She didn't see him. I did. She dropped. She's on the ground for about, you know, maybe a minute. She stood up, and she had to grab her, her dress because she lost two dress sizes. Instant weight loss. See, now here's the difference between the glory of God, the habitation of God, and the anointing. The anointing is something God gives you that you exercise. But when he shows up, when the glory shows up, you watch. Flesh isn't interactive in that except for to say this is what the Lord is saying. What I'm talking about here in this 
untested, untried, end-time, teachable individual is Jesus is going to release every anointing and then he's going to inhabit. He's going to rest upon that individual in a way we have never seen. And that anointing, that new final generation, and it's new because he's creating a new thing in the earth, is going to bring Jesus to the Mount of Olives. He's going to bring him to the place where he returns. The triumphal return. Church, this is what we're looking at. So they start with Jesus there, and here's the next thing. All the people in front of Jesus throw down their garments, throw down their mantles in front of him. We're talking about a posturing and a position of humility and a recognition of the, the presence of God where you finally understand, where we all get to the place of saying, you know what, Lord, apart from you, I can do nothing. And every gift you've given me, every anointing, every success, every failure, every revelation, Lord, I throw it at your feet where it belongs because you are Lord. We have to get to the place where we surrender everything God's given us. Successes as well as failures. Anointings, revelation. Keep your hand open. You're a steward of everything in this life. You don't own anything. But in particular, Christian, as we follow Jesus, if we're going to walk in this great end time mantling and presencing of God, we have to understand it all belongs to him, and so we place it at his feet. Some years ago, as I was writing my first book, Promise of the Third Day, I came upon the story of Abraham. And Abraham, you know his story, or Abram, at the time the Lord gave him a promise and said, I'm going to make your descendants as the sand of the seas and the, and, and the uh, stars of the heavens. So everywhere Abram went for 20 years, he saw sand and he saw stars. He had the promise in front of his eyes continually, continually. That's why I wrote that eight and a half by 11 piece of paper and I posted it in my house so the promise of God would be continually in front of my face. And so then they, they trusted God for 20 years, and guess what? Isaac was born. The fulfillment, the beginning of the fulfillment of that promise and that destiny. At a time when it was absolutely impossible, humanly speaking, for Sarah and Abraham to have a son because they were well past those years. But here's the thing. When you keep your focus on the promise of God, which is the word of God, then the impossible is possible. When you look at the circumstance, you agree with the circumstance. When you look at the word, you agree with the word. Because what you focus on, you connect with. And connection releases activation. So now, fast forward from there, 33 years. And the Lord says to Abraham, I want you to offer up your son as a burnt sacrifice to me. 33 years later. How did you get that number? Well, if you study the age of Sarah and Abraham when they had him... and. It, Look, he was 33 years old. He's not a teenager, as most depict. And so Abraham takes Isaac and a couple other young men up to the mountain to offer him up. Interesting. Why would Abraham be willing to do that? Because he knows this covenant-keeping God. He's been friends with him for many, many years. And he knows that God doesn't break his word. And Scripture says he knew that if he did kill him, God would just raise him again from the dead. There was a picture of Jesus in the Old Covenant. Isaac is a type of Jesus. 
Abraham was a type of God the Father. The Father offered up His Son. But even more than this, here's what's interesting. This was a test. It said God tested Abraham. So what's the test? Is He going to kill His Son? No, the test is even deeper than that. This is a test every one of us will face in this hour. The test is Abraham. Do you love the God of the promise more than the promise of God? Let me say that again. Isaac was the promise of God for both he and Sarah. And God tested him and said, Do you love the promise of God more than the God of the promise? Or do you love the God of the promise more than the promise? You see, we have to come back to this basic foundational understanding we keep our focus on God, not on the blessings of God. We keep our focus on the Lord, not on the, the giftings of God, not on the anointings of God, not on the, you know, the multiplied blessings He gives us in the natural realm. Our focus our, must remain on God. Everything we learn in this life is a test in some way, shape, or form to position you for the eternal realm. So you must understand, you're a steward of the gift of God. You're a steward of the blessings of God. You're not an owner. And nobody can boast because we don't have anything that we didn't receive from God. Let me say that again. You don't boast because we don't have anything that we didn't receive from God. If you have a gift to be in business and create wealth, God gave that to you. If you have a musical gift, God gave that to you. We could go down the list. We don't have anything we didn't receive from our Father. Therefore, we honor God with what He's given us in every area of our life. Amen or oh no? Now let's see. Verse 37, then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. Here's the next prophetic metaphor. As we get all of these things in place and the Lord begins to move in this last generation, there's going to be such a resounding rejoicing and praising of God that's going to spring forth sovereignly and supernaturally. It's going to be like David once again. It's going to flow from the Spirit. We're going to sing new songs, prophetic songs, songs that have not been heard that are going to flow really from the heart of the Father through His people back to the Father. It's a new day that's dawning. I can show you many instances in Scripture that depicts how at the end of the age there's going to be a different type of worship that has never been heard before. We're getting small glimpses now, but we haven't seen anything yet. What's about to be released in this hour transcends anything we've ever experienced. Where we're going to have a place in worship where sickness and disease flees, where darkness goes, where people are delivered supernaturally instantly in this place of worship because it's a new thing God's doing. Not by might, not by power, not by gifting, not by intellect, only by His Spirit. 
So they began to worship with a loud voice for all the works they had seen. We're about to see tremendous miracles. You know, it used to be back in the day we considered the, the raising of the dead to be the pinnacle of faith. The most amazing miracle most anybody had ever heard. Wow, that guy's powerful. They raised the dead. Now that's entry-level Christianity. Matthew 10, verse 7 and 8 says, As you go, whatever you're doing throughout the day, preach, saying, he gives you the message, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why? Because you're there. Now heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead and cast out devils. Freely you have received, freely give. Yeah, I got saved in the early 70s, and when I went to Bible college in Southern California, I also worked at TBN, Trinity Broadcasting Network. You might not be familiar with that, but that was Christian television in its early days. And I was, at the same time as going to Bible college, I was working at this Christian network, and I had a practical lesson in character or the lack thereof. I'd learned that you can have a gift from God and be proficient in your gifting but lack the character of God. It was tragic that these men or women that would come on, not all of them, just a few, would come on with powerful anointings. And when they're under the anointing, God does things. But when you lift that anointing, there's nobody you want to be around. One individual would tell such putrid jokes he would have made sailors embarrassed before he'd get up and share the word. I couldn't believe it. Another brother, he was teaching great message. In the Lord, Paul and Jan said, go an extra half hour. After the show, he got off. He was really angry. I didn't study so long and so hard to give this stuff away for free. But my Bible says, freely you've received, freely give. I had a graphic example of the disparity between gifting and character. And it's still in the church today. Not every church. We better be careful. We don't want to be those that Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. No, we want to be those that the Lord says, well done, good and faithful servant. How do we stay in that place? We recognize we're stewards of a gift. There's nothing that we have done. It's all been given to us. Well, you know, I studied, but God gave you an ability to study. I worked hard, but God gave you the ability and the, the grace to work hard. It's all from God. If you live your life in an attitude of thanksgiving, you will be amazed at what God can do in your life. They said, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now here comes the persecution. This end time church is not going to be free of persecution. And the persecution comes from the church before it comes from the world. The Pharisees 
called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. All throughout Scripture you see religious people come against the move of God. Every move of God in the church from its inception, when the next move of God begins, those from the old last move of God fight against the new thing God's doing. It's an historic fact. Why? Because we take the last move of God and instead of looking at it as a marker in our journey towards God and moving on, we camp there and we stagnate on. We create it to be something that it never was intended to be other than a signpost pointing towards a greater day and a greater thing. You have to remain like this cult, teachable. The Lord says every day His mercies are new. Every day there's fresh manna. Every day you have access to greater insight, greater revelation, greater intimacy. You cannot be content with yesterday's manna. He wants to do something new in your life every day. Live with that expectation and you will not be disappointed. It makes walking with Jesus exciting. And don't be afraid of the persecution or the judgment that comes from within the church. Otherwise, you'll not, you're not going to do what God wants. I learned many years ago this lesson also. I have an audience of one. His name is Jesus. I please Him. I'm not here to please people. I'm here to please the Lord. And so with that understanding and with that insight, I've been free to serve God and to do as God has told me to do because I'm not concerned so much about how people react or respond. I'm looking at how He reacts and responds. So the fear of man is gone. You have an audience of one. That's the only one that counts. You've got to stop being afraid of, oh my goodness, I'm going to look foolish. Let me let you in on a secret. You already do. You've looked foolish to people all of your life, and you will for the rest of your life. Who cares? We all look foolish to somebody. Look here. I don't care. You're here to please Jesus. And if you learn to please Him, you're going to love, your, love people for who they are and where they're at, not who you think they should be and how they should respond to you. You can love them anyway. Amen? So, Jesus answered and said to them, I'm telling you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. How could the stones cry out? Well, there's another few metaphors in that one. You're living stones. That's what Scripture says. But there's another aspect to this that scientists have discovered some years ago, that matter has memory. You know the hard disk, the old hard disk now, in your computers? Piece of metal, right? A lot of memory on that thing, encoded and written. Everything that's ever been spoken or done in this church is recorded in the matter of this church. We have a good friend, Dr. David Vancouvering, a quantum physicist. Brilliant man. Never learned physics in university, was self-taught, but has over 600 patents in physics. He invented the electronic keyboard, the Moog synthesizer. He invented the touch screens. 
This is one, one thing he began to study some years ago when he read how Joshua took a stone as a witness between him and the people of the promised land that he shouldn't have gone into covenant. He said, let this stone bear witness between us. And he went, why would he say that? And he began to research. And he discovered matter has memory. And so he went beyond that. He came up with the way. He didn't have the technology a few years ago. It's here now because of the microprocessing. That he can extract from this, right here. We'll just use this. Everything that's ever been said or done is recorded as audio and video in this pulpit. And he knows how to extract it now. Well, that's fun. The stones will cry out. Why? Because they remembered the day of creation where the Lord said, Light be! Boom! There was an explosion of light and worship through all of creation. And they remember. And they recognized. Amen. Well, just as a freebie to throw in there, I like rabbit trails. Our friend Dr. Vancouvering, one of his best friends back some years ago, was the lead scientist on the Human Genome Project. That's the study of the human DNA. He got a call one day from his friend. He said, Vancouvering, come to the lab. We need you. He said, what? Just, just come. I can't tell you on the phone. So he drives down there, and he had to go through the you know, security protocols, and he got into the lab. Everything they did in the DNA lab, they would record what the micron microscope was looking at. He said, now here, here's the problem. He said, what? He said, why is it that every strand of human DNA has the ancient Hebrew alphabet? He said, I, I, I don't know. So he was telling Reshma and I at lunch one day about this, and Reshma said, well, that's easy. It's my wife. He said, in the beginning was the Word, and in the book of John, the Word became flesh. Dr. Vancouvering sat there for about two seconds. He went, oh my goodness, that's it. Embedded in your human DNA is the ancient Hebrew alphabet. Amen, brother. That's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> that's why when you speak the scripture over your body, it must conform and line up. Be healed. According to the stripes of Jesus, according to 2 Peter 2.24, I am healed. And your DNA has to obey. Hmm. Okay. I think I'll have a drink. Now as Jesus drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. Jerusalem. You know, there's a new, there's a city coming down from heaven, the new Jerusalem. You are stones that are fitly joined together to become this great city, the temple of God. And he weeps over it. Because it didn't recognize the time of his visitation. 
And the truth is, at the end of the age, there are many in the church that are not going to recognize the time of their visitation because they're so steeped in tradition and yesterday's move, the past moves of God, that they will fight against what God is releasing at the end of the age. We have shifted in this Hebraic year of 5778 into this new season where the Lord is releasing extraordinary things, profound revelation and insight. And the hungry remnant, those that are passionate for God, are going to connect with the revelation that God's releasing to this generation, and they're going to walk in it. And those that are comfortable where they're at are going to fight against it because they don't want to be uncomfortable because it takes faith to walk this walk. That means you have to do something. They haven't embraced a lifestyle in the church of consumerism and entertainment. We'll sit and watch. That's the pastor's job. I can't tell you how many times pastoring I heard, well, that's your job. You're supposed to pray. You're supposed to read the Bible. You're no, that's everybody's call. If you're born again, you have a calling of God. You have to define what it is by the Spirit of God and do it. it might be being a housewife or a mother or a teacher. or a Look, it doesn't always mean you're up here. But every one of you has a calling of God. You need to inquire of heaven and say, Lord, what is it that you've designed me to do in this generation? Because I have a, a purpose and a destiny. And so you move towards that to honor God. And it will be uncomfortable. But who wants to stagnate on? I used to love singing the old hymns. There was a hymn I used to like, Blessed Assurance. One day the Lord said, no, let me give you the actual words as I see it. I said, okay. Blessed Assurance, this seed is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of death on the vine. We say that we love him. Let's lay that to rest. For seldom, if ever, do we give God our best. This is our story. This is our song. Grieving our Savior all the day long. Why? Because we are hearers and not doers. That's not going to work anymore. He's calling to you. He's calling to me. He's calling to a generation to arise and shine. Because this is the beginning of the final great move of God. This is the beginning of the greatest supernatural lifestyle that you can walk in that's been made available not only through times and seasons, not only because we've come to the end of the matter, not only because he's going to fulfill every promise in Scripture, but because he chose you for this hour to model the kingdom of heaven on the earth. He's chosen you for this. I have seen more supernatural and miraculous in the last 17 years than I did all of my Christian life before that. When something shifted at the turn of the century, 
Something drastically shifted. And listen, I've had encounters with Jesus from a very young age. But something shifted in the year 1999 through 2001. And he's opening heaven's doors. He's releasing to a generation that are willing and are passionate for him the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And we're beginning to walk in it. One of the things Jesus released early in the morning on the third day. The third day, 2 Peter 3.8 says, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. From the time of Jesus until the turn of the century, we have completed 2,000 years in two, or two days. Now we're early in the morning on the third day. Remember, Mary went to the garden tomb early in the morning on the third day to prepare the body of Jesus correctly. When she looked in, the first thing she saw was angels. So there's great activity of the angelic in this hour. It's happening all over the world. She didn't see Jesus. They said, he told you he wouldn't be here. He's going to be in Galilee. He, she turns outside. She has no concept, no revelation of the plan and purpose of God in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus because they had a preconceived idea based upon tradition of the elders that stated Messiah would appear and he would conduct himself in such a way and that he would oust Rome and he would establish a millennial kingdom. So they had a grid, a box built upon tradition, not upon the revelation of the scripture. We're no different today. Everybody's saying, oh, look here, look there. He's going to come here. He's going to come then. I mean, it's mass confusion, and I, I just got this to say. If I look at the pattern of Scripture, nobody's going to know. Y'all got it wrong the first time, and they were far more... Uh, i got to be careful. They were far more tutored in Scripture in that day than we are, and yet every one of them missed it. And so she has a, a concept based upon tradition. She's blind when she turns around, and there stands Jesus. I had a friend of mine, another a theologian, that said, well, Scripture says his visage was marred and he was unrecognizable. I said, that doesn't wash. She was there when all of that happened to him. She helped carry his dead body to the tomb. She knew what that looked like. So don't tell me she didn't recognize that. What she didn't recognize was the fact that he was resurrected. And so when she said, sir, she thought he was a gardener. Sir, where have you taken him? And Jesus said, one word, Mary. And immediately she recognized his voice. And she went to grab him. He said, don't touch me. That's really cold. No, it's not. He's our high priest. He'd gone through a process of purification. He had shed the blood of the innocent himself, the lamb that was slain before the founder. He had to go to heaven and sprinkle that blood. But because of the passionate yearning and cry of one, he stopped in that final step and said, Mary, it's okay, I'll be right back. Tell my disciples. Passion for Jesus is so intrinsic to what God's doing in this hour. And if you're at nominal in your, in your walk and your move towards God, pray and repent and ask God to burn within you. Bring back the zeal of your first love. It's going to be necessary. Here's what happened to Mary. Early in the morning on the first, the third day, revelation was released. And God's releasing profound revelation on this third day for anybody that's passionate for him. Amen or oh no? 
Make Jesus your magnificent obsession. Your life should, your life should be all about Jesus, and everything you do should be around that passion. That way you won't be deceived at the end of the age. God has a purpose and a destiny for you. A profound purpose and destiny. Let Jesus untie you from that. Let his disciples untie you from that pillar today. Be teachable. Go with them and receive the mantles and the very habitation of Jesus for this hour so that you can carry his presence right up to the triumphal return. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. I want to pray for you. Are we still friends? I don't know. Hardly got any amens. Yeah, there we go. I feel better now. (laughs) Father, I thank you for glad tidings for this church, for their zeal for you. I've seen it in the worship. I've seen it in the pastors and leadership. Lord, I thank you for that. I thank you that you're leading them into this season as forerunners. And what you want to release upon this house and upon this people has yet to be seen in this nation. My Father, when their hearts burn fiercely for you, you will manifest fiercely on their behalf. And I thank you, Lord. You've brought us to this final hour, this day, this time, when you're going to be pouring out of your spirit like never witnessed before. And you've called us to carry your presence in a way that's never been seen before. And so we rejoice, we worship, and we thank you for what you're doing and for having called us. I speak a blessing upon this people, a release of revelation, Father, that they might know you in ways they've never known. In the precious name of Jesus, amen.